Um, reading the Bible is a, is a work of imagination. We have to see what's happening. And I want you to engage your imagination. Jesus has challenged the Pharisees, and they want to get rid of him. And everything that's going on in chapter 7 that we talked about last week. And then the scriptures say that uh, in John 7.53, again, they went each to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Uh, all of these people had a place to stay. Jesus is sleeping on the ground, uh, camping out on the Mount of Olives. This is what uh, pilgrims would do. And early in the morning, he came again to the temple, and all the people came to him. And in verse 3, all right, the scribes and the Pharisees bring this woman caught in adultery. I want to share with you some of this so that we can flesh this out and we can humanize this a little bit. Um, it's pretty clear that they want, they say in verse 5, the law of Moses commanded us to stone such men, women. Um, and it seems that they're quoting, uh, they're, they're referring to a passage in Deuteronomy 22. Now, uh, immediately we notice that one person is absent from this conversation. Who would that one person be that's absent from this conversation? The man. Um, there are passages of scripture that deal with uh, adulterous couples that say that both the man and the woman have to be uh, have to be stoned, um, but there's one passage in Scripture which deals only with the woman, and it's in Deuteronomy 22, and it has to do with a betrothed woman, a woman who is betrothed to be married but not yet married, um, and if she engages in adultery, then she's supposed to be stoned. Now this gave birth to the idea in Jewish uh, in Jewish legal thinking um, that if a betrothed woman, a woman who is engaged to be married, committed adultery, she was to be stoned. If a married woman committed adultery, she was to be strangled. Now, I want to I point out that we have no record of them ever doing either one. Um, but, but that was kind of the argument. The argument was, well, this is why Deuteronomy 22, it says a, a, a betrothed woman. Um, she's supposed to be stoned. So I want you to see this woman for a moment. I want you to see the way Jesus sees this woman. Let's see. A woman betrothed to be married, accused of immorality and impropriety. Could Jesus have possibly had experience with a woman that people had suspicions about whether she had committed adultery when she was betrothed to her husband? his mother. Boy, did they pick the wrong case to bring to Jesus. I think, and I mean, we talk about Jesus being the Son of God, and so he knows things, but the, the scriptures also say that he emptied himself of his, of his glory and his power. And so I just see Jesus with them bringing this woman and making this accusation, and I, and I, and I think of him seeing his mom. I think, by the way, there are three women so far. He's going to refer to her as woman here. So far, there are three women that he's used that title for, that title of honor. His mother at the marriage supper of Cana, the woman at the well of Sychar in John chapter 4, and now this woman caught in adultery. Um, I wonder, by the way, if Jesus' mom had to go to the well in the middle of the day because there were accusations because of him because he had been born before she and Joseph um, had been married. And whether there was a great deal of dishonor uh, heaped on her um, 
make no mistake, Mary was one tough chick. If you have not um, taken the time, if you weren't here last Christmas when we talked about Mary, um, I encourage you to go on the website and, and, and uh, engage with Mary um, from a real uh, perspective. Um, but they bring a woman caught in adultery and they put her in, her, in the midst of the crowd. And the, the purpose of doing that, by the way, um, they're clearing a space for them to throw the first stone. Now, let me explain how stoning works so that you understand the situation. The person who throws the first stone in the case of a, a stoning execution, we, if you grew up in church, you see these pictures of people just holding stones. They're going to throw it at people. What you did was you took someone to a high point, a roof or a wall, and threw them off. And then you dropped a big stone on top of them. That's what's meant by throwing the first stone. It's not, eh. It is, you get to be the person that crushes that person's body with that first stone. So here is a woman accused of adultery, brought without the man, who either scarpered or maybe he's in the crowd. And they just don't want to accuse him. Um, and she brings him. They bring him to Jesus, and she says, "Should be should she be brutally executed for her act of impropriety?" Now, let me add another dimension to this. If she is a betrothed woman, she's a teenage girl. Jesus, how important is the law of God to you? Is it important enough that in order to stay in obedience to the law, you'll take this girl, who for all we know committed a foolish, I mean, I know as teenagers we never did foolish things, act, or who knows how this situation actually arose. We don't have any context for it. And by the way, I think the reason John identifies with this is John was probably in his teens himself when this event occurs. So he sees a girl his age. That's going to make an impression, this situation. Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Verse 4. We're supposed to stone her. So what do you say? What are you going to do, Jesus? Now, what does Jesus do? He bends down and he starts to write in the dirt. And there are all kinds of conversations about why he's writing in the dirt. What is he writing? What is he doing? I'm going to tell you right now, if the Holy Spirit wanted us to know the specifics, we'd have them. But I, I want to give you a, a possible idea of what's going on here. The traditional view, which was taught for a thousand years, was that Jesus bent down and began to write the words of Jeremiah chapter 17 and verse 13, which says, Those who turn away from you shall be written in the earth, for they have forsaken the Lord, the fountain of living water. Now, if that is what Jesus was writing, uh, that fits very, very well with what's going on. 
But the reason that that verse is used is because apparently, apparently, one of the ways that a rabbi would pronounce judgment or a, a Jewish leader would pronounce judgment on a person, rather than having a, a big legal document written up with certification and notes and everything, is they would write the accusation in the dirt. And then once the punishment was taken out, they would wipe out the dirt. This, by the way, is the we read in the scriptures the reference of blotting out his name. Right? We read that, that line from now and from time to time. That imagery may be there. It may be that Jesus is writing the name of the guy who was with the girl. It may be that he's not doing anything. Maybe that Jesus is just doodling. Just making tricks in the dirt. Jesus bent down in verse 6. He bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And rather than lifting a stone, Jesus bends to the ground. So he goes in the opposite direction of what they want. He he challenges their expectation. They want Jesus to either say innocent or guilty, either stone or don't stone. Now, I have this impression, this feeling, that if Jesus had said, go ahead and stone her, they would not have had the fortitude to actually do it. That they were, they were, they were bluffing with Jesus. They're trying to push him. They're trying to get him to say something that they can then run, run off to the, the Romans and say, see, he's defying your law. He's telling us to execute people. We're not allowed to execute people. Cry babies. So he throws this out. He says, whoever's without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. Now why make that statement? Why, why particularly say he who is without sin? He doesn't say the senior of you. He doesn't say the most qualified of you. He says the one of you that is without sin. In other words, the one of you that can say you never broke a single one of the laws of Moses. He challenges them to say, those of you, whoever has not managed to ever break the rules, you can enforce the rules. You want an extreme action? I expect extreme righteousness from you. See, he throws the extremes. They want, they want practical, right? She committed adultery, she needs to be stoned. And they're going to the, the total extreme of punishment. So Jesus says, well, the only person qualified to conduct the most extreme of punishment is the one who can observe the most extreme of righteousness. Then he bends down and he starts writing in the dust. Now, I cannot confirm this in one shape or form. But I think the second time he writes something different. I think the first time he writes something that has to do with the curse, or the, the accusation, or the judgment, or something like that. But the second time, I am convinced, and I could be very, very wrong, that he starts to write all of the commandments that these guys have broken. 
and he just starts writing. Pride, covetousness, violating the Sabbath. I don't even think he needs to get to the worshiping the other gods ones. He can just, he can deal with the lower ones. Maybe he simply writes the Shema, love the Lord your God. All right, the Lord your God is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind. And the second is second commandment is likened to the first. He says to love your neighbor as yourself. Maybe that's what he writes. But one way or another, the old men, and you got to catch the details. Verse nine. When they heard this, they went one by went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. So here's a crowd, woman accused of adultery, beaten, probably dragged through the temple courtyard, um, laying on the ground. They want Jesus to stone her. Jesus is down on the ground doodling in the sand, and all the old guys who are, you know, old guys are going, and they just start to drift away. They realize, A, that they're trapped at work. B, that they have no legal standing. And C, Jesus isn't going to bend. He's not going to break for them. They can put all the pressure in the world on him, and he's just going to challenge them and challenge them and challenge them. He must have been so annoying. And he is annoying to people that want religion and faith and Jesus on their own terms. And then, after they're drifting away, the woman is just standing there. Jesus is on the ground. In verse 10, he says, Hey, where'd they go? Now, catch this, by the way. Has has no one condemned you? Jesus actually asks her, to pass judgment on their righteousness. Jesus inverts the entire situation. He says, where's the person who's justified and allowed to condemn you? Now, is this woman guilty? She seems to be. She seems to be. Does Jesus know that? Yeah, he does. Boy, that's good news for us. That's good news for us. Guilty woman standing in front of Jesus. He knows she's guilty. And yet, he treats her with compassion and respect. Has no one condemned you? She says, no one, Lord. And Jesus says, neither did I. do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. Did the people, the disciples, who are still with Jesus at this moment, all the accusers are gone. The man and the, Jesus and the woman are standing in the midst of the crowd. His disciples are still there. Do they remember Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus where Jesus says, the Son of Man came not into the world to condemn the world. The world is condemned already. Do they remember when Nicodemus said just the day before, 
Nicodemus said, does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? John chapter 7 and verse 51. And here is Jesus, the one who has the power and the right to judge, saying, and this is important, I choose not to judge. Not that Jesus was incapable of judging her. He chooses not to judge her. That's more good news for us. He chooses not to condemn. There are so many big ideas I could draw out of this passage. I think I could probably preach on this passage alone for six to eight weeks. There is so much going on here. But I want to leave you instead with kind of an open-ended question. Who was Jesus teaching in this moment? Now, don't throw all your answers. I want you to think about it. Who was Jesus teaching in this moment? Now, I'll give you a hint. I don't think it was the Pharisees. The extraordinary thing about Jesus is that sometimes with Jesus, this is not about this. It's about that. And sometimes the people he's talking to are not the people he's talking for. Because maybe there's a group of people here who need to get a handle on the breadth and depth and width and scope of the compassion of God. And Jesus creates a space. He doesn't doesn't present a lecture. He doesn't create an argument or anything like that. Jesus simply creates a space through his actions where those who need to learn the lesson are able to see the lesson lived out. And there's an application to this that, I, I again, I, it's open-ended and I want to throw it out to you and I want to leave you to process it. Sometimes we get so focused on what's happening with us at the moment that we never stop to think who is learning from what God is doing in me. It is, it is very easy. I'm going to tell you a horrible story about myself. Yesterday, we took apart Ariel's loft bed um, because I sold it on uh, Facebook Marketplace. I hope, I really hope she shows up on Wednesday and takes this. Um, and I had to move the parts down into our basement. And I didn't want to take it all the way apart because then it was going to be, it, it was difficult to put together. It was hard to take apart. And there was some stuff that happened. Um, I'm carrying a piece down through the door of our basement. We live in a split level ranch. So you got to go downstairs and then turn around and go down another set of stairs. 
and there's a, a gate across this door because the dog likes to eat the cat food and the cat likes to do unspeakable things to our upstairs carpet. So the gate's open. I come through with this piece. I'm frustrated to no end with this. This is even before Sean heard me frustrated about something else yesterday that was moving another bed into Ariel's room. This is moving her bed downstairs. And as I'm going through this door, our house is not handicap accessible, so the doors are kind of narrow, and downstairs is dark. There's no light at the bottom of the stairs. I go through this door with this piece of bed frame, and I am unaware of the fact that there is a chin-up bar hanging off of this door frame. Now, this chin-up bar hates me. It falls on me all the time. And as I'm bringing the bed frame through, I bump this stupid chin-up bar, and it managed to drop at an angle to hit both my shoulder and my head. I'm not proud. <laughs> of the words that I uttered loudly with the windows in my house open for all of my neighbors to hear. Because I got to tell you, mad, I look funny. Hobbits are not known for their rage. And I, I cussed. I mean, I, I, I cussed at a level of, of, I am already in pain. I got this issue going on with my legs, so I'm, I'm already in a lot of pain. I've got this stupid bed frame. I barely managed to get around. I'm trying to turn a corner. This dumb thing falls on my head. I cuss at the top of my lungs. Me cussing is funny, so my wife is laughing upstairs. That's not making it better. Oh, no, our marriage has no compassion for these kind of things. This is her revenge for my sarcasm. And in a moment, in that moment, um, as I'm recovering, you know, going through concussion protocols, checking my my pupils, making sure that I remember what day it is, um, I realized in that moment, uh, what if my neighbors are listening? Now, I've heard all of them express much worse sentiments. Um, the language, the, the air in my, my neighborhood can sometimes be quite blue. Uh, but everybody knows I'm the pastor. Everybody knows, you know. They don't like me, but they know me. Well, the Jehovah's Witnesses like me, but that's beside the point. Um, do we think of the moments and the challenges and difficulties we face in our lives, do we think of them only as teaching us? Or do we think about them teaching others? Your children see you. They see you lose control. My daughter has seen me lose control. She's seen me rage. She's seen me be angry. When that happens, 
by the way, moms and dads, do you have the strength of character to apologize to your children? When you rage at your spouse, do you have the strength and trust in the covenant of God to apologize for violating the environment that is supposed to be about journeying together with Christ? You say, I don't need to journey together with Christ. My spouse isn't a Christian. Oh, there's even more reason then. Scriptures say that, that, that when there's one believing spouse in a family, sometimes that one believer may be the message of God to that household. You're at work and you lose it because your boss has put you on the 875,346th Zoom call. And you're like, COVID is over, can we meet in person? But they figured out it's cheaper to do this. When we, when we look at the environment we are creating, are we thinking about those who are being taught that are not us. My daughter's at college. She grew up in this church. She is bored out of her mind by every preacher she has heard. She thinks, she, she messaged us, she's like, this guy is so patronizing, he keeps having us repeat the same thing. I want to punch him in the head. She went to a church service and she, she um, now she's found a church that she really likes and the pastor is pretty cool and everybody's uh, old and she's pretty sure that she can get to know all their pets and stuff and um, their grandkids. But um, she went to a church service and she's like, I don't even know what this guy is talking about. Like, like is he ever going to open the Bible? I said to her, Ariel, you know this isn't all about you. This isn't all about you. Uh, Some of those kids, they need this. They need to hear this. And what they need even more than that is maybe somebody spiritually mature enough and knowledgeable enough, like say you, as a pastor's kid, to deepen their faith through your commitment to the Word of God. And I said to her, you guys know me, I said, I'm bored all the time. I go to other churches, I am antsy the entire time. Because I want to do what I want to do. I want to preach the way I preach. I want to hang out with the people that I like. But we simply do not know what environment Jesus is creating through his creative direction of bringing us into a situation to teach someone else. That's why we have to be cautious with our patience. And our words. That's why we have to be thinking about who we are and who we represent. That's why Jesus calls us, or the Apostle Paul calls us ambassadors and citizens of a better kingdom. Because we're a part of Jesus teaching someone, and it's not always us. And let me take a moment and finish with this. I want to thank, because I don't do it publicly enough, I want to thank everyone in this congregation who is committed to creating environments where people encounter Jesus and journey together. People who say, this is not always about me. People who say, you know what, Um, 
I'm going to do this thing, I'm going to serve in this capacity, not because I want to. I mean, none of us. I mean, Sean, when he gets up in the morning, does not go, I can't wait to unplug that toilet at the church. Um, guys, we, there are folks that come to church sometimes and they don't feel like being the nursery, the nursery uh, workers. They don't feel like teaching. They don't feel like playing. I come to church feeling like that way. But the moment of God, Jesus' creativity is not always about me. You know what's extraordinary is we have absolutely no idea who this woman is. We have no idea whether she actually came to faith or not. We have no idea if she didn't just wander off and get into another adulterous relationship. We have no idea because she wasn't the only one Jesus was talking to. Would you join me in a word of prayer? Father, we all have our embarrassing moments. Our days when we are more broken sinner than we are redeemed uh, redeemed saint. But help us to learn. Help us to be draw strength and encouragement from the hope that you're using us to teach someone. And thank you for the gracious opportunity in our brokenness to be the body of Christ. May we do better at representing you as you are trying to teach those around us.